Bible, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. <clears throat> we're in the section of Corinthians where we're talking about loving my body, not this physical body, but the body of Christ, the body that God has placed us in. And the reason we're doing that is because chapters 12, 13, and 14 form this unit where Paul is addressing a specific situation at the church in Corinth. And right in the middle is the, 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 the filling of this cookie of love in chapter 13. Time magazine ran a cover story uh, a little ago called Why We're Losing the Internet to the Culture of Hate. There are trolls, of course, but their poisonous hatred isn't all that's going on. And the Internet, especially social media, marketing, and politics, is filled with envy and offense. You don't have to be online or awake very late in the day to realize how much of envy, offense, and things are happening in this culture of hate on not just the internet, but in our world in general. Our politics has nothing to do with the common good. It's currently ruled by self-interest and special interest groups. And in order to become somebody of influence, you need to stir up, what, envy and offense and anger in your followers. It's about getting enough of them to join your side against the other side. Presidential elections are a case in point. They're doing this to our country. Aren't you offended? So you need to join me because of how awful they are. And our culture is characterized by the offended self. Joel Stein, in his book, How Trolls Are Ruining the Internet, writes this. Psychologists call this the online disinhibition effect, which factors like anonymity, invisibility, a lack of authority, and not communicating in real time strip away the mores society spent millennia building, and it's sleeping or seeping from our smartphones into every aspect of our lives. It used to be you had to talk to people face to face. And so when you're actually looking at a person, there are some things you wouldn't say to their face. But now in our culture of anonymity and online, we can say all kinds of things because we never have to look that person in the face. We can say all kinds of things and be uh, hateful and mean and crude and rude because we're not actually looking at a human being. We're actually just looking at our smartphones or our computers and we're putting the things out there. And so the, the triumph of the offended self could be the banner over this moment in our history and in our culture. Everyone is offended about something. It's the exalted me It's the stubborn self that's really what's offended. And so here's what the stubborn self is. It stakes out its own territory within us to assure it's getting its own way, ordering our world to its likings. You see, Paul in Corinthians was talking about the Corinthians were not being uh, cognizant of those around them. It was the idol of self. We haven't come very far since Paul wrote Corinthians 2,000 years ago. In fact, it's even getting worse with our uh, social media and our culture. And so what happens is the offended self, although it's not new, it has new resources like anonymity and the uh, internet. It's embedded assumptions in our offended self and privileges in our psyche. And so here's what the self-life is. It's a part of us or it's in us. It so easily takes offense. In fact, it enjoys taking offense. It wants things done our way. It makes demands. And of course, our demands are perfectly reasonable and justified. Isn't that funny how that works? Everybody else's demands are irrational, irreasonable, and unjustified. But my demands are perfectly reasonable. And the problem is you just can't see it. You can't see that my demands are reasonable. But if you could, you would know that I'm right. 
So here's what the offended self is. It doesn't like being interrupted. It doesn't like being cut off on the freeway. It doesn't like being told what to do or how to do things. It hates it when someone corrects our driving, our cooking, our performance, or our politics. In the self-life, it keeps a record of wrongs, and it holds those imaginary conversations with people we'd love to set straight. Now, I know you've done this, because I've done that too. Boy, I, if, I was, if I was talking to that person, here's what I would say to them. Boy, if I would just text that person, here's what I would say to them. And it crafts those devastating emails that we wish we would only be able to send. Haven't you had those conversations in your head? We absolutely had those people we would like to tell off and set straight and correct and, and, and uh, why they're wrong and, and we are right. You know, it also has a religious version. We're irritated when prayer goes longer than we think it should. We feel wrong when the church service goes longer than we think it would. We feel offended when the, we don't want to worship. We're irritated when somebody talks too long about their life. And we're quietly angry when people suggest that our hope should be set on the life to come and not on the here and now. Well, what do you mean? I'm offended that you would suggest that. And one of the embarrassments of Christianity is the fact that people who follow Jesus can still live in these vain, stupid, pompous, mean, and hateful ways. When someone crosses us, thwarts our politics, or our theology, or our personal ambition, we feel no qualms about character assassination because our offended self is at the helm. Now, If some people came to mind while I was describing the offended self that you think have this offended self, you are the problem. If you did not think of you in that description, you are the problem. Because the offended self says, I don't have the problem. (laughs) Everybody else is like that, but not me. Now, We all have the problem because we all agreed we had those imaginary conversations in our heads with people we like to tell off and people we like to set straight and people we would like to see things from our point of view and our perspective. Now, the great news is we are all in this together, but the more awesome news is Paul has the solution for us. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, and probably more than any other chapter in Scripture... This chapter is torn from its context. The context is this. Paul is appealing for Christians to live out their lives with respect and self-sacrifice. And unfortunately, this chapter has been ripped out of this communal context within the body of Christ. And it's been used at things like weddings and funerals and graduation ceremonies and on and on. But chapter 13 is in the middle of the place where Paul is talking to the church. It has nothing to do with the love between a husband and a wife, but it has everything to do with the love a believer is to have for others. Paul puts this in here. It's a, he inserts it kind of between 12 and 14. It's a solution to the real problem that the Corinthians were experiencing. Remember what they were experiencing? I'm just a little better because I have these gifts that you don't have. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow my favorite teacher. Readers would not think that Paul was going to praise them. And so what Paul does, he inserts this. So 1 Corinthians 13, even though it seems out of place, it's right in the place because Paul is reminding the Corinthians, and he needs to remind us as well, 
that in this world we live, where we are so easily offended, where we are so easily upset and angered because the, the offended self is at the helm, Paul says, here's what the answer is. The answer is love. And so what Paul is talking about, he's talking about conduct that ministers to others both inside and outside the body of Christ. What are some obvious things we uh, know are, are missing from this? He, Paul is not talking about a feeling. Love primarily in Scripture is agape. It's a self-sacrificial love. Paul doesn't care what you're feeling. He cares what you're doing. Paul doesn't care if it's cupids and hearts and candy and roses. That's not the point. The point is what? It is conduct that ministers to others. And it's not that we wait until we feel like it. It's that we act and then we will feel. We are so feeling driven anymore. We don't do anything if we don't what? Feel like it. Well, here's the thing. When you do it, then you'll probably feel like it. Or when you do it, then the feelings will come. And so what Paul's doing is he's, he's talking about a manner of conduct that must show itself in the life of believers. So if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul is saying this is what's expected from you. Whether or not you feel like it, this is what is expected from you. And as we minister to where? People inside the body of Christ and also outside the body of Christ. So there are no limits on these conduct that Paul describes. Really, it's the Christian's code of conduct. Let's walk through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul is setting the stage and he says, you can brag about all your talents. You can brag about all the things you've done. You can brag about all the uh, hungry children you fed and all the houses you built for the homeless. You can brag about all of that, but if you don't have love, you're still nothing. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They had all these gifts and all this talent and all this ability. And Paul says, that's wonderful. But if you don't have love, all that stuff. He, in fact, he says what? He says in verse 2, if I do this and if I do that, I am nothing. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I do all of these things, I do all of this service, but I don't have love, what? I gain nothing. He said, if I speak in the tongue of, of, of men and angels, it's hyperbole to say that I have this, what, this, this wisdom and this knowledge and this eloquence and all of these things. But if I don't have love, what am I? I'm like the clashing of a gong or a cymbal. Now, I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've listened to gong music. Put on my top 20 hits of gong music. There's just something irritating about it. Remember the gong show back in like 1970? What happened when somebody lost? Bong! And Paul says, that's what happens to us. If we don't have love, it's like we got gonged on the gong show. We are losers. <laughs> we're, we're, we're nothing. And even self-sacrifice can be self-centered. Paul says this, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, what? That I may boast. Oh, look how wonderful I am. 
I do this over here, and I minister over here, and I serve over here. Jesus said, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So Paul, think about how shocking this is, even for us to hear it. Paul is saying this, you can be the most talented, the, the, the smartest person in the room, but if you have, don't have love, you're not a whole lot. You're talented. Now imagine the other side of that is, if you are talented and you have love, how effective and amazing that will be. But Paul was pointing to the Corinthians and they were focusing, remember, on the wow things. They were all the wow things that they could do. And it was all the things that were dividing them. And Paul says, you're missing the point. If you don't have love for each other, the wow things don't amount to anything. You're nothing and you gain nothing. So he used these contrasts to set up this chapter. If I do this, but I don't have love. If I do this, I don't have love. If I do this and don't have love. And so love, remember what love is. It's a choice to do the best for the other person. It is making their interest your interest. Love is not a feeling. It is a decision to do the best for the other person. And so now Paul is going to describe to us, he's going to say, okay, in case you wonder what love is, I'm going to give you some things that love is. I'm going to tell you some things that love is not. These are the verses we always quote in weddings in different places. Look what he says in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient. And it is kind. You know what patient is? long suffering that's what love is love is long suffering love is what it is also kind you see how love is the antidote to the culture of the offended self when the self is offended we are not kind we are vulgar and evil and rude and crude i said this before there's a there's a thing called captured by the spirit we oppose and, the, and it's the thing that two wrongs don't make a right. Because someone you like is rude and, or don't like is rude and mean, that doesn't give you a right to be rude and mean talking about the person who's rude and mean. Because what's the end of the day? You end up rude and mean. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Love isn't going to have any of that. What is it? Love is kind. Now he says, here's some things that love is not. Not only is it kind and patient, and patient, remember the Corinthians had this propensity. They were wanting to retaliate with lawsuits in verse uh, chapter 6 and verse 8. Or they had these poor people at the communal meals, right, and who, were, who were being neglected. And so there's this patience. And so patience is, 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 the, um, is having the capacity to be wronged and not to retaliate. The culture of the offended self is we retaliate. We get online and we send texts and we do all kinds of things to get back. But responsive love is good and kind. So now Paul says some things that love is not. Does not envy. Does not boast. Is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. All the things that Paul says love is not are symptoms of the offended self. Think about it. 
The offended self is proud. How dare you talk to me or challenge me? Don't you know who I am? And Paul says, wait a minute. This is what love is. Love is not proud. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Well, look who I am. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. What is the culture of the offended self? The culture of the offended self is you cross me in some way, and the ways that we feel offended are, are widely expanded than they were not so many years ago. Now somebody just does not have to agree with us, and we're offended We don't allow people to have their own thoughts and their own thinking and their own ideas. Now we are so internalized of the culture of the offended self that if someone doesn't agree with me, that somehow they they are discounting me. We've not been able to separate those. And so what Paul is saying, here's what love is. Love is the antidote to the offended self. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Do you have those people in your life that you're afraid to say something to because you know they're going to fly off the handle? Maybe you're that person for the people in your family. They're just dancing around you, afraid to tell you the truth, because as soon as they tell you the truth, you're going to blow up, and you're going to storm out, and you're going to shut up, and you're not going to talk for weeks. There was a situation in my family when I was growing up. My uncle my grandfather got in a fight. They did not talk for years. And they lived across the dirt lane from each other on the farm. Like they just went around and didn't talk to each other. Why? Because the offended self, the self was so offended and they were so easily angered. You know, something happens in our brains when we are angered. There's a chemical called cortisol. It's released into your brain. It's just anger. You know how long it takes for that to dissipate? About four hours. You have just ruined Four hours of your life by getting angry. But boy, we're justified. Boy, I told them off. Boy, my offended self, I set them in their place. And guess what? They're off on their happy life and you're for four hours stewing, literally. We just gave four hours of our life over because our self was offended. It keeps no record of wrongs. Why is that? Because our offended self... We have to keep records of wrongs because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We are so easily compare ourselves to someone who's much worse than us. We don't rarely, we rarely compare ourselves to Jesus, right? We always want to compare ourselves to the worst relative we have or the worst person that we know. And so part of our offended self is that we keep filing cabinets in our memories. And for some of us, those drawers are long and deep. Go all the way back, all the way back, all the way back. Why do we need those files in there? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves if I got dirt on you. You offended me three years ago, and I'm still holding on to that. Why? Because it makes me feel better than you. You're an awful offender, but I'm not. And we're blinded to our own offense because not only do I have files on other people in my filing cabinet, but guess what? If others are doing it, they have files on me in their brains. It's not just a one-way accounting system. It's if I'm doing that to others, you know others are doing that to me. And so somewhere in somebody's long memory, I might be a folder in there if they're keeping their record of wrongs about me. So Paul says, here's what the answer is to the offended self. If you find yourself easily 
angered, if you find yourself easily work, worked up, here's what the answer is. Love is the, love is the antidote to that because you need to get self out of the way. What is love? It's always the best choice for the other person. There's, there's, it's not about self in there. And yet we like to be offended and we like to be angered and we like to keep records over and over and over. Here's some other things love does not do in verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Man, if there's anything in our world today, is if we would actually rejoice in the truth and not rejoice in evil, it would turn this world upside down. But we just love to rejoice in evil. Why? Because if I'm offended by you and something happens to you, I'm going to rejoice that something's happening to you. Because it makes me feel better. I'm rejoicing in evil. In fact, the offended self is, if you say something to me that offends me, and as I'm typing up that email, and I'm texting all those things, and I, what am I doing? I'm getting some sense of satisfaction out of this, and guess what that is? That's rejoicing in evil. If I feel good about telling someone off, I'm rejoicing in the evil of that moment. There's no other way around it. But I'm justified because you did wrong and I'm right and now I need to set you straight and now I've been offended and now I'm going to set you straight. And what am I doing? I'm rejoicing in the evil of that moment. And listen, we, we are, it's very hard to see the evil in our own hearts. We can see the evil in everybody else's hearts, but it's very hard. And that's one of the deceptions that the Bible says we have. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things else. Who can understand it? And so in our lives, we will go around and we will be justified and we will be right. And we will be we will be stuck in our in our self-righteousness and our pride and our anger. And yet we will we will feel that we're right because look at the other guy. He's awful. And in those moments, I'm rejoicing in evil. I'm allowing evil into my life. Listen, hate is hate. It doesn't matter if you're hating a hater, you're still hating. And I'm rejoicing in evil. Why? Because of my offended self. Myself has been offended. You've crossed paths with me. You have, have done something and challenged me. And so Paul says, here's what it is. It always rejoices with the truth. What is the truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality, how things actually are, not how I want them or how somebody told me that they should be or how they want them to be, but truth is what it is. And so I rejoice in that. As Christians, we are to be champions for truth, not fantasy, not fiction, not make-believe, but we are champions for truth. This is how things are, and this is what, they, uh, what, what, the, what the facts are, and, and that, that's where we land as believers. Here's some things it always does. Number verse 7. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Those are those things that love does. Love is what? Love is a doing thing. Love is an action thing. Love does. It, it, per, it perseveres. It remains steadfast in the face of unpleasant circumstances. It always hopes. It always perseveres. It, it always looks and rejoices in the truth. You know one thing love does? Love believes the best in other people. We always want to believe the worst in other people. In fact, it makes us feel better when we can see the worst in other people. 
But love, what, what does love do? Love always sees the best in other people. It doesn't question their motives. And we always tend to think that people have the worst motives. But what will we, well, how would that change our thinking? When love says it always trusts, it always hopes, and it rejoices in the truth, is to say, I'm going to believe the best. That maybe you just misspoke, or maybe you didn't understand what you were saying. Instead of getting caught up in the offended self, the love believes the best in others. It rejoices in the truth. And it's, it's, it's amazing how many mind readers we have in our world today. Every, you li- I, here's your homework this week. I want you to listen for how many times someone states as fact what somebody else is thinking. It's all over. You say, well, you know what? I'm not so much on social media. I'm not. But listen, it seeps out in everything. That Everything that we see now is fueled by social media. It's fueled by that. And so you listen this week. When, and people will say, absolutely, why somebody did something. They know the motive. I don't even know my motives half the time. How do you know the motives of somebody else? And we want to so quickly assign motive. It's because they're mean, because they're ignorant, because they're stupid, because they're this, right? We don't know what the motive is. And yet we live in a culture that assigns motive all the time. We, are, we, have, we, have, we have become professional mind readers of why somebody did what they did. And then we will live our lives just saying, well, this is why they did that. And that could not be why they did that at all. You know the person that cuts you off on the beltway? We can, we can sign a motive. They're reckless. They're, they slow down. They never slow down. And we can manufacture this whole story in our heads, right? We know who their family is. Like, we know their, we know their family of origin. If they have better driver's education, all that stuff. But what if it's a guy rushing to the hospital to see his dying mom? You didn't know that. But we're living with this fantasy that we knew exactly why that person cut us off. And what we do is we assign the worst motives to people, but the best intentions to ourselves. You have bad motives, but my intentions are always good, even if it was misunderstood. And that's not what love does. Love says what? I'm going to, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails in verse 8. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul's saying this. Love is the mark of maturity. Love is the mark of maturity. That's what, that's what the mark of maturity is. He has, this, he has this contrast between some things that are here, temporary, and some things that will last. And those things that are temporary are those things that are immature, those things that are not complete, those things that have not risen to that level of maturity. And so what Paul says is, Paul says this, that, that, that all those things will stop. When I was a kid, I talked like a kid. If you are still talking like um uh, like three years old when you're like 60 there's there there could be some physical things absolutely but if we're still doing that for no other reason we've not matured very well and paul says listen in the church if you have been in jesus there has to come a place where you have put the childish things behind 
what does a child always do? They want to have what? Their way. You just follow a little kid around Walmart for more than five minutes, and you are going to see, right? There's a, there is a clash between wanting their way and wanting the way of the parent. And Paul's saying this, if you have been in Jesus for very long and you're still wanting your way, you are still a child. Love is the mark of maturity. It isn't talent. It isn't abilities. All these things that he mentions, prophecies, tongues, uh, all those things. Uh, he said, okay, church, that the, in, in Corinth, those things are part of the Corinthian church. He said, those don't matter because they're, they're going to be done. But what matters is love. It is how you love. It's, it's, love is the mark of maturity that Paul says will last. Corinth was famous for its bronze mirrors And so you would appreciate Paul's illustration. The perfection and imperfection were in these contrasting images, right? Of of looking into a mirror clearly and then seeing one that's a... It's like when you get out of the shower in the morning and the mirror's all fogged up and you can't see yourself clearly. And Paul's saying that's what immaturity is, when you can't see yourself clearly. But maturity is when you can see yourself clearly. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, but now I'm different as an adult. And he's talking spiritually. He's, he's talking physically, obviously, as in chronological age, but he's also talking maturity and growing up in the faith. He says, Corinthians, some of you are acting like kids. <laughs> I didn't get my way. Or you're getting more attention than me. If you have little kids around and somebody starts paying attention to one little kid, what's the other little kid do? They'll come up and they'll come over and they'll come, right? Why? And, and, but, we, but, it, but we can still do that in the church. And Paul's saying, listen, love is the mark of maturity. How do I know I'm growing up? It's by my love. It's not about, it's not about my Bible knowledge. It's not about the eloquence. It's not about any of that. But what he says is the mark of your maturity is how you love. God has created us for community. He has, not, he has not brought us into a solitary kingdom. He has brought us into a community of believers. That's why love is the mark of maturity. We need to learn how to get along with people, and love is how we do that. The spiritual gifts cease, but love endures forever. He says that in verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is the grace of these love? Because love is the thing that we're going to be doing in all of eternity. Listen, when Jesus returns, we're not going to have to have hope. We're going to see him. When Jesus returns, we're not going to have to have faith anymore. We are going to see him. Faith is the assurance of what? Things hoped for. If things not seen, we're going to see him. But what are we going to do for all of eternity? We're going to love. We're going to love God who's in our midst, and we're going to love each other in the body of Christ. And this life, this life is just the training ground for something we're going to do eternally. This life is the, is the training ground for, for, uh, for love of that action that we are going to do forever. And so uh, uh, the, the Corinthians had this individual spirit, this individual thing where they didn't worry about any other person. And so what they did was they said, it was my rights and it's my thing, and I'm going to trample you along the way. And so even when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, I'm going to go ahead and eat. I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care if you're less well off than me. I'm going to get what I want to get. And Paul says, listen, in the, in the world that may be acceptable, but life in the kingdom needs to be different. He says, you are to have concern for each other. You're to love each other. And here's how I can tell who is growing up. It's by their love. Did you notice all these things are 
about love or actions and attitudes. It's things what we choose and things that we can step right into. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Isn't that the commentary on our world today? You do me wrong, now I'm going to do you wrong. And what happens? Because I do you wrong, now I find that I dislike you more. Paul says that's not the way of love. The way of love is that I still love you. What happens is my, then my affections towards you start to change. My, my attitude towards you starts to change. And if we allow anger and hatred and bitterness to start growing inside of us, that starts to bubble out. And what Paul says, the antidote to that is love. It's not that feeling of love. It's the decision. It's an act of the will. I think we have to have a paradigm shift as we talk about what it means to love Jesus and what it means to follow him. You ask most people what the goal of Christian life is. And the goal, they'll, they'll say the goal of the Christian life is to grow closer to Jesus. That's not the goal of the Christian life. Do you know what the goal of discipleship is? The goal of discipleship is to love God and love others like yourself. That's the goal. Jesus never said... Jesus never said that the goal of discipleship is to get closer to me. Do you know why? Because in Christ, we're already close to him. We are already close to him. We're we're praying for something or wanting something that we already have. It's like we pray, Lord, just be near me. God's like, I told you I'd never leave you or forsake you. What are you doing? Pray for something else. And so what, what, we, what, we have to, what we forget sometimes is in our individualistic discipleship, we say, well, my goal is just to get closer to Jesus. You are already closer to Jesus. Look at Galatians 2.20 says on your notes. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But what does it say? Christ what? Lives in me. You can't get any closer than that. We have those clingy people in our lives, right, sometimes. They just want to, oh, you know, like, and you're like, get away from me, get away from me. Like, like, close, like, they can't, like, close, they can never be close enough. You're like, I need to breathe here. You're like, go away. Jesus is even closer than that. <laughs> He's in us. So the goal of following him is not to get close to him. He's in us. How much closer can you get? The life I now live, what does he say? I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. See what Paul says? I, Jesus is close. What, what did he do? He loved me. And because he loved me, what did he do? He gave himself for me. That's the mark of love. We've been adopted into Christ. We already are close to Jesus. And the point is this, is that we are accepted, adopted, and loved by God. And as a result... We love other people through our actions. The goal, it, because, because we are in Jesus, the result of being in Jesus is our love for one another. Love begets love, and love is self-forgetful. Love doesn't keep all those records. It doesn't keep all those things. Agape means to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. Isn't that the kind of love God has for us? 
God's love for us is a love despite disappointment and despite our undeservingness. That's the kind of love that God gave for us. It's all rooted in the goodness of love. Paul says what? He loved me and gave himself for me. The first question in our lives should be, God, how can you be this good? I know me. (laughs) I know what I've done. I know what I do. I know my thoughts. I know all that stuff. And yet, God, in Christ, you love me and gave himself for me. God, how can you be this good? It's grace when we're in Christ. And so then the next question is not, uh, let me be close to Jesus, because Jesus is in us. But as a result of us being close to Jesus, we love God and we love others. The love of God experienced through Christ is returning in love for God, for Christ, and for his people. And that's how Paul described love. See, that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has less to do with husband and wife and how it has everything to do with how we treat all people, all other people in our lives. Do you know who who other people are in our lives? There's you, and then there's everybody else. (laughs) There's everybody else. And we won't look for the loophole. We say, yeah, but who's really my neighbor? (laughs) Who, Who really? Come on, God. You can't expect me to do that for everybody. And Jesus never lets us off the hook, does he? Because he didn't let himself off the hook. He hung there and died for us out of love for us. And he says, no, 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 no. I went to the cross so you don't have to. But part of your uh, bearing your cross and the the dailiness of your cross is you're going to have to just love people and get over yourself. Get that offended self out of the way because I took care of that at the cross. That was nailed to the cross when your old life died in Christ. Newspaper columnist and minister George Crane tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he hurt me. And so Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. Go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. So with revenge in her eyes, she's like, this is good. (laughs) This is great. I will set him up, how much I love him, and then I will crush him. And she said, beautiful Beautiful. Will he ever be surprised? And she did it with enthusiasm, and she went home and acted as if. And for two months, she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, sharing. And she didn't return to Dr. Crane for a follow-up appointment. He called and said, are you ready now to go through with a divorce? Divorce, she exclaimed. Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as often repeated deeds. Love is that, what, decision. It's the action done in the best interest for the other person. And that's why it's the antidote to the offended self. I can already hear the the disagreement. But you don't know my situation. You don't know this. You don't know this. I don't, but God does. And he's the one who says you're supposed to do it. I'm not telling you to do it. God doesn't say, oh, yes. 
out of 7 billion people on the planet, here's your hall pass. You're off the hook. That's not what he says. He says, my son came and died for you. The least you can do is die to yourself for other people. If you're a follower of Jesus. And you say, well, that's kind of hard. It is hard. If somebody told you the Christian life was easy, you need to call them up and say, you lied to me. You sold me a bill of goods. You said this would be easy. It would be all, you know, unicorns and cotton candy and all kinds of stuff. It's not. It's hard stuff. And if you're at that point now, you understand what Christianity is about. It's about the hard stuff. It's about the denying of self. It's not about the offended self. It's about the crucified self. It's not about the exalted self. It's about the humbled self. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, now you got it. If your head is in a knot because you're like, yeah, but you don't know the people in my life. Listen, God knows the people in your life and he will give you the power and the strength to do it. Not by you, but because of him who lives in you. Paul says this, the life I live, I'm not living it by me. I'm living it by Jesus. And sometimes I'm going to have to say, no, Jesus, instead of Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, you need to put the lock on my lips. Jesus, you're going to have to hold my text messages for a while. Jesus, you're going to have to put a break on my thumbs because I, at the rate I'm going, boy, I'm going to go. And so what I'm doing is I have the choice to either live in the flesh or to live by the life of Jesus. And it is a struggle. It is hard. It is difficult. Sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. Sometimes we do this and sometimes we don't. But the goal, listen, the result of being in Christ is loving others. So the question for us today is how am I doing at loving others? I don't mean just the people that love you. Remember what Jesus said? Even the pagans get credit for that. Even mafia bosses love their mamas. (laughs) You don't get any credit for that. He said, but what do you do? You, You love your enemies. You bless those who curse you. That's where the challenge is. Why did Jesus tell us to do that? Because that's what he did for us. What happened when Jesus was hanging on the cross? People were not worshiping and saying, holy, holy, holy. They were saying, if he can save others, let him save himself. He, he, uh, he claims to be the son of God. Come down off that cross. What were they doing? They were hurling curses at him. And Jesus said, I'm, not, I, I'm just asking you to do what I did for you. You want to know the love of Jesus? Listen, if, if you want to know the love of Jesus for you and the gulf that he had to span to love us in our sin. I, I mean me. You think about you, I'll think about me. If I truly want to understand the love that Jesus had for me, I need to start loving people that I don't necessarily like or that I consider enemies or that I can't really stand because that will then show me a glimpse of what Jesus did for me. It results in, Lord, how good you are that you loved me. We say, well, you know, uh, how am I... Listen, there are no loopholes. In the the era of the offended self, Christians are not to be known by their offense, but by their love. We just are. It's about who you are in Christ, not who the other person is that deems them worthy. It's about who we are in Christ, not about who they are. And we say, well, Lord, yeah, but, but listen... This is who they are. And God's like, no, no, no. You have, I'm living in you. It's about who you are. It's not about them. I'm calling you to love. I'm asking how you're doing in that area. I want to deal with them. You deal with you. 
Over and over, Jesus didn't let us have any loopholes. Remember he said, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Pretty much everybody in life can be considered one or the other, right? There are neighbors, those who we have relationships who are close, or our enemies, those who we don't care for. Jesus didn't let us off the hook for either one of those. Whew. I wish Paul wouldn't have put that in there. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't so much the stuff of weddings, is it? But it's a call for us in 2020, uh, in, this, in this culture of offense, that we as believers need to live differently. We just do. And it is a, it is a, it is a challenge, it is a struggle, but listen, the fruit is far worth it. What does Paul say? The life I live, what? I no longer live, what? By me, but by what? By faith in the Son of God. So have you been angered, offended, discounted? I know all of us have thought of people in our lives. We ask God for the strength to say, Lord, how am I doing at loving others? It's not the feeling. Remember, it's not like, oh, I'm going to... No, it's, it's the choice to do the best for the other person. Sometimes the, the, sometimes the thing to do best for the other person is not to gossip about them, is not to talk about them, is not to put them down. Sometimes the best for the other person is just not to say anything. That's doing the best, right? I'm not calling them up and asking them out for coffee. I'm not buying them overpriced flowers. I, none of that. Sometimes the, the best is just not doing the thing I want to do. That's love. Sometimes the best is doing the thing I don't want to do, the thing that I need to do, the thing that's truthful. So let's pray that we have that love in us. I know love is overused sometimes in our world because it's this, it's this uh, idea of this, of this emotional fantasy. But that's not what the love that Jesus shows. The love of Jesus is we do the hard thing even for the people that don't deserve it. That's what true love is. Would you please stand and we're going to pray. Father, may we be a people who are known by our love. Father, we forget our standing in Jesus sometimes, that Jesus is close. We are, we are already near to him. The goal of discipleship is not to be near to Jesus. He's in us. The goal is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love other people like ourselves. And Father, we can be, like the Corinthians, are guilty of, of being more like the world that they lived in than by the kingdom that they were brought into. Father, what a freeing thing it would be to be able to go through our days and our weeks without being offended and angered by, by just about everything and anything. God, to be free to love you and to be free from the, the, the burden of the weight of the offended self. And so, Father, today, would we just bring that under the blood of Jesus to crucify that offended self? We're going to make that commitment now. And in an, in an hour from now, it's going to pop back up just like whack-a-mole. And we're going to have to knock it down again. And then tomorrow, it's going to pop itself up. And God, keep us doing it until we get it. When the mature comes, the immature will disappear. So, Father, help us through this growing up process. Help us to mature in our faith. But, God, ultimately, that we would see Jesus in a, in a magnificent way of the way he loved us. Us, me. So, Father, we just give you all of that. Minister to us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.